listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. alternative shunned by the AFL was the Socialist Party, founded in 1901 by veterans of the Knights of Labor and the People's Party, and by leaders of socialist organizations based mainly among German and Russian Jewish immigrants. Eugene Debs, former leader of the American Railway Union, was the party's chief spokesman and perennial presidential candidate. He had become a socialist while serving prison time in the Pullman strike. The SP organized a large network of locals and two national youth groups, the Young People's Socialist League for Workers and the Intercollegiate Socialist Society for Students. The SP rejected dual unionism, the formation of radical unions to rival those of the AFL. Instead, the party bored from within the Federation, where socialists promoted industrial unionism organizing the unorganized and political action in alliance with the SP. Socialists were active in building industrial unions. In the winter of 1909 through 1910, SP members like Lithuanian-born Pauline Newman played a central role in New York City's Rising of the 20,000, a strike by women shirtwaist makers that won union recognition for the ladies' garment workers. Socialist-led insurgencies that ousted conservative leaders from office in the Hatters, the Sheet Metal Workers, and the Carpenters. In 1912, Socialist Max Hayes of the Typographical Union challenged Samuel Gompers for the AFL presidency and got close to a third of the vote. Socialist-led Farmers' Union mobilized against landlords and bankers. SP speakers and publications identified socialism with the American history and values. Echoing Deb's declaration that the party embodied the idea of liberty and self-government in which the nation was born, employers' associations and business-minded civil groups replied with a barrage of literature that depicted socialism as an alien doctrine. AFL leaders agreed. To serve the rank and file or simply to remain in power, socialist labor officials placed their union's immediate interests above party ideals. For example, William H. Johnston, elected president of the Machinists in 1911, endorsed industrial unionism at AFL conventions, but did not promote it in his own union, where he thought it would cause unlimited trouble. When socialism confronted popular protest beyond the boundaries of unionism and electoral politics, they generally tried to redirect it. 
In February of 1917, thousands of immigrant housewives in New York City took action against soaring food prices with a consumer boycott. Neighborhood demonstrations and mass marches on both City Hall and the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, where the governor was rumored to be staying. Amidst the turmoil, the SP organized the Mother's Anti-High Price League to lobby public officials. In their work with the League, socialists repeatedly suggested that the boycotters would do better to support unions' effort to raise wages and the party's campaign for women's suffrage. In contrast, the industrial workers of the world, also called Wobblies, thought the labor movement future lay with the masses denied the vote and excluded from the AFL. At the initiative of Western Federation of Miners, WFM, an independent union of metal miners, some 200 labor radicals convened in Chicago in June 1905. WFM Secretary William Big Bill Haywood welcomed them to the Continental Congress of the Working Class. Among the dignitaries on the platform were socialist Eugene Debs and Mother Jones, anarchist Lucy Parson, widow Haymarket martyr Albert Parsons, and Catholic labor priest Father Thomas Haggerty. The convention adopted a constitution that began, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common and the IWW was born. Its founders disagreed on political action. Some promoted electoral work. Others advocated syndicalism, taking direct action on the job to build industrial unions until they were strong enough to launch a general strike. Syndicalism prevailed at the IWW's 1908 convention. The others fell away, and Wobblies went forth to organize militant industrial unions under the auspice of the one big union, the IWW. Best known for strike agitation and free speech campaigns, the IWW also staged lectures, debates, and distributed pamphlets and periodicals in more than a dozen languages. Its little red songbook included songs like Solidarity Forever, written by the wobbly newspaper editor Ralph Chaplin, and today the anthem of American labor. IWW graphics often contributed by avant-garde artists still make powerful appeals for labor unity and revolution. Big Bill Haywood had organized miners for 20 years, always packing a gun. Rebel girl Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who mounted her first soapbox at age 16, traveled coast-to-coast as an IWW speaker. Black longshoreman Ben Fletcher organized across the South and led Philadelphia's Local 8 of the IWW Marine Transport Workers. His trademark slogan was, All for one and one for all. Joe Hill came from Sweden in 1902, tramped from job to job, joined the IWW around 1910, and wrote subversive lyrics to popular tunes. Half Cherokee Frank Little called himself the reddest, wobbly, and the IWW's only true American. Wobbly scrupulously practiced solidarity. If you are a wage worker, you are welcome. The IWW is not a white man's union, not a black man's union, and not a red man's union, but a working man's union. They accepted unorthodox behavior. Mary Equa, an organ 
physician who became active with the IWW during a strike by immigrant women cannery workers wore men's clothing and lived openly as a lesbian. The IWW gained national notice for its role in a 1909 strike at a U.S. steel subsidiary in McKee Rocks, Pennsylvania. When the company cut pay, Slavic steel workers went on strike and called in the Wobblies. Strikers and their wives battled with state police for 45 days. Thirteen people were killed. After the railroad trainmen, an independent union, refused to transport scabs, the company caved in. The IWW's reputation grew with the 1912 Bread and Roses strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts. In January, 25,000 work immigrants from a dozen ethnic groups walked out of the city's textile mills to protest wage cuts. While the AFL Textile Union tried to squash the strike, the IWW organized moving pickets to foil injunctions and sent trainloads of striker children to safe haven in New York and other cities. After two months, the strikers won. Militant solidarity was not always enough, however. In Maryville, Louisiana, during the winter of 1912 through 13, the IWW's Brotherhood of Timber Workers struck the Santa Fe Railroad's American Lumber Company, which had fired union members for testifying in defense of workers charged with murdering a company guard. Local farmers supplied the strikers with food. African Americans, Italians, and Mexicans hired as scabs joined the strike instead. In May, posses of lawmen and company guards attacked the town, ransacking homes, beating and arresting strikers, and killing a black organizer. The Brotherhood was destroyed. Local government smashed other wobbly efforts. A 1913 strike by 1,700 rubber workers in Akron, Ohio, lasted a month. Police clubbed and arrested pickets, deputized vigilantes, broke up meetings, and ran wobblies out of town. That same year, the IWW supported 25,000 workers striking the silk mills in Patterson, New Jersey. Police arrested almost 3,000 pickets and killed two. The strike collapsed after seven months. The IWW challenged local government in more than 20 campaigns to claim free speech and assembly under the First Amendment. In 1909, when Missoula, Montana tried to silence Wobblies with an ordinance against public speaking, the IWW called members and sympathizers into town and flooded the jail with free speechers. In Spokane, Washington, police detained more than 600 wobbly speakers in November 1909. Several died from torture in the sweat box, where guards tossed prisoners back and forth between sweltering and freezing rooms. Wobblies won many free speech fights, but they remained prime targets for repression. In 1914, Salt Lake City Police arrested Joe Hill for murder. The prosecution presented no motive, no eyewitness, or connection between Hill and the victim, but still got a conviction. Shortly before his execution, Hill wired Haywood, Don't waste any time in mourning. Organize. The IWW scattered his ashes in every state except Utah. In Oregon, Dr. Equi performed the honors. Repression continued. In 1916, police and company thugs savagely attacked striking IWW iron miners in Minnesota's Misabi Range 
and sheriff's deputies shot up a boatload of wobblies at the town dock in Everett, Washington, killing six and wounding over 27. But by 1918, the IWW had at least 100,000 dues-paying members. At their peak, the IWW and Socialist Party combined were less than a tenth the size of the AFL, but Samuel Gompers and his lieutenants obsessively maneuvered to counter socialist influence and thwart wobbly organizing. By 1917, on the other hand, prospects looked bright for syndicalists, political socialists, and AFL conservatives alike. The IWW was growing as never before. The SP was rebuilding through its foreign language federations. AFL headquarters was celebrating Woodrow Wilson's second inauguration, but developments had already started to shift the ground beneath their feet. By mid-August 1914, the great powers of Europe, along with their clients and colonies in the Balkan Middle East and Africa, had divided into two camps and gone to war. Four years later, the Great War between the Allies and the Central Powers had claimed 10 million lives in battle. Another 20 million had died of war-related starvation or disease. The United States declared neutrality at first, but there was considerable sympathy with the Allies, Britain, France, and Russia. Financiers like J.P. Morgan helped to fund their side of the war with close to $3 billion in loans and bond purchases. The American Defense Society and other patriotic associations held rallies for intervention and sponsored summer camps where young men could receive military training. Newspapers carried stories of war atrocities by the Central Powers, Germany, and Austro-Hungarian Empire. Still, many Americans opposed the calls for intervention. German-Americans often sympathized with the Central Powers. Most Irish Americans condemned any alliance with Britain. Russian Jews were against aid to the Tsar. Pacifists organized anti-intervention groups like the American Union Against Militarism and the Women's Peace Party. Much of the AFL came out against intervention, too. In May 1915, eight national unions headquartered in Indianapolis jointly condemned U.S. entry into the war. Their combined membership totaled about 900,000, almost half of the AFL's rank and file. In June, the Chicago-based Labor's Peace Council organized a national labor coalition to demand strict neutrality government ownership of munitions companies and a ban on arms sales to the combatant nations. Employers and authorities alike took note. Strikes by munition workers were blamed on German agents. Several leaders of Labor's Peace Council were indicted for a conspiracy with a German officer to instigate strike. When two of the defendants were convicted, the council fell apart. Police arrested AFL radicals Tom Mooney and Warren Billings for a bombing that killed 10 people at San Francisco's Preparedness Parade on July 22, 1916. Despite photographic evidence of Mooney's alibi, both men were convicted. They remained in prison until 1939. By 1917, Samuel Gomper supported intervention in the war. After President Wilson broke off diplomatic relations with Germany, in February 1917, Gompers organized a summit meeting of labor officials. Invitees included members of the AFL Executive Council, national officers of 79 AFL unions, and leaders of 
five independent railroad brotherhoods. Gompers had left out the Union most staunchly opposed to an intervention. At the summit, held on March 12th in Washington, D.C., he set forth a resolution that declared, should our country be drawn into the maelstrom of the European conflict, we offer our services. Ruling revisions out of order and denying union leaders' requests to consult with members, he demanded and got unanimous approval for the resolution. Just weeks later, on April 6, Congress declared war on Germany. The U.S. Army quickly expanded from 200,000 to over 4 million, including nearly 3 million draftees. More than 2 million troops went to Europe, where close to 49,000 were killed in action and another 63,000 died of disease. On the home front, the federal government took charge of the economy, allocating resources to war-related production, regulating its management, and taking direct control of communications and railroad systems. With the demand for labor soaring and immigration from Europe sharply curtailed by the war, industrial employers recruited new workers from the rural South, the Southwest, and Mexico. By the end of the war, about 500,000 African Americans, even more Southern whites, and tens of thousands of Mexican Americans and Mexican immigrants had moved north to industrial cities. Soaring prices and the push for breakneck war production made 1917 the most strike-torn year in U.S. history to that date, with nearly 4,500 walkouts by over 1.2 million workers. Workers knew that labor was scarce, that the government encouraged quick concessions to strikers in war industries, and that the owners of these industries were making windfall profits. They also feared that this war, to make the world safe for democracy, should extend democracy to the workplace. Mobilizing industry, the government also mobilized public opinion in behalf of the war and backed up persuasion with repression. The Committee on Public Information flooded the country with pro-war press releases, advertisements, posters, movies, and some 75,000 speakers. The Espionage Act of June 1917 and the Sedition Act of May 1918, meanwhile, empowered the government to censor anti-war newspapers, ban anti-war literature from the U.S. mail, and jail anyone speaking against the war. The U.S. Justice Department coordinated the American Protective League, a businessmen's group that reported disloyal activity, about three million cases by the war's end. Vigilantes took action as well with groups like the American Defense Society sending out patrols to break up anti-war gatherings. Socialist party leaders immediately condemned Congress's declaration of war and called for continuous, the active, and public opposition, a stand SP members ratified by a margin of 8 to 1. Its Workmen's Council mobilized anti-war sentiment in unions. The young socialist A. Philip Randolph and his comrade Chandler Owen founded the monthly journal The Messenger to promote unionism, socialism, and war opposition among African Americans. In the state and local elections of November 1917, socialist candidates did well enough for Eugene Debs to declare the Socialist Party is rising to power, growing more rapidly at this hour than ever in its history. Anti-war agitation was drawing an increasingly harsh response, however. In early August 1917, the Green Corn Rebellion 
an open revolt against the draft erupted in Seminole County, Oklahoma, while white, black, and creek rebels cut telegraph wires, burned bridges, blew up oil pipelines, and declared their planned march to Washington, D.C., feeding themselves on reckoning corn along the way. Subsequent measures were aimed at the social party itself. The Postmaster General banned SP publications from the mail. The Attorney General named A. Philip Randolph the most dangerous Negro in America, and federal agents ransacked the messenger's offices. The Justice Department indicted 27 SP leaders under the Espionage Act. Debs was sentenced to 10 years for making an anti-war speech in Canton, Ohio. Victor Berger was re-elected to Congress, then convicted of speaking against the draft, and the House of Representatives refused to seat him. The IWW focused on expanding the big union. IWW members in northwestern lumber camps led a successful strike for the eight-hour day in the summer of 1917, and organizing drives continued among harvest hands, metal miners, lumber workers, stevedores, and merchant seamen. But the Wobblies' caution regarding the war provided no protection. On July 12th, in Bisbee, Arizona, where the IWW was leading a peaceful strike by copper miners, deputized vigilantes packed more than 1,200 strikers into railroad cattle cars, deported them to New Mexico, and left them in the middle of the desert. On August 1st, masked vigilantes seized Little, tied him up to an automobile, dragged him to a railroad bridge, and hanged him. On September 5, 1917, federal agents raided Wobbly offices and homes in 64 cities to quote Big Bill Haywood, who was sentenced to 20 years. The Justice Department had shook the organization as a bulldog shakes an empty sack. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. (music) 